0: Well, I'd like you to turn with me now to the book of Matthew. We'll look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's take a, a one week break from Galatians. Matthew chapter one. We're gonna look at verse eighteen through to the end of the chapter today, but we're gonna read just into chapter two. So I'll invite you to uh, read along with me. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse eighteen. We read Luke's account earlier. Now we're going to look at Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. It says now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. At the end of at the end of that passage, we're told that these wise men they came from the east seeking this child who was born in Bethlehem in order that they might worship him. It's, this is a, a, a part of the Christmas story. We hear it this time of year, maybe many times, and uh, we, we may or may not even, we may just be so used to hearing it. We may not even realize, again, just how interesting this is that these wise men travel from the east. They come to find a baby boy and their purpose and intention is that they might worship this young child. And moreover, when we read of this in the Bible, this act is not condemned. Rather, it is presented to us as exemplary. <clears throat> it's presented to us as a correct and right response to what is happening. Now, if you think about the Bible and, and what happens when men bow down to that, those things that are not God... Uh, this is never, ever commended. In fact, they're always rebuked. Even when an angel of the Lord, glorious, a holy angel, uh, an angel that has never sinned, <coughs> excuse me, appears to, um, to, uh, to, to men, we find often men do bow and worship. And whenever that is the case, those men are rebuked by the angel. They say, uh, don't bow to me, get up. It's never appropriate to bow to that which is not God. And yet these men come and they find a child and they come to worship. And this is not ever rebuked or corrected. Obviously, this leads to the question, what child is this? We know this song that asks that question. What child is this? How can this possibly be an appropriate act for anyone? And again, it is indeed the appropriate thing, the appropriate response. It is right. And it is not just right for these men that traveled from the east, but it is right for all mankind to bow down and to worship this son who was born to Mary. This was and is no ordinary child. He is the eternal Son of God, who took to himself a human nature in order to save his people from their sins. He is God the Son incarnate. You maybe heard that word. If you don't know what the word incarnate means, it means enfleshed. It is the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh, found in human form. And he came, he was found in this way in order to bring salvation. So as we look through uh, verses 18 to 25, uh, I want to look at two things. And, and, and none of this is creative. This is not a creative Christmas message of any kind. It is just the Christmas story. You just want to look at two things. You want to look at the incarnate person. So, we're looking at who is and, and what is this child. And then, secondly, the incarnation's purpose. That is why this child came in this way. So, first, the incarnate person. As Matthew opens his gospel, we didn't read uh, verses 1 through 17, but as he opens his gospel, he begins with a genealogy of Jesus, of who this child is, of his heritage. He is said to be, in verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And just even right there, as you open this and read, he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. There's a lot there that this reveals to us about who this child is. There's a lot to go on. Right away, we're being told that this is the offspring of Abraham's line who would come and bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That's what was promised to Abraham. We see, in addition to that, more narrowly, it's not just Abraham's line generally, but even more narrowly, this is the son of David, the one who would sit on David's throne. And then as we get, then, then we have this, everybody's favorite text, this, uh, this genealogy in verses 2 through 17. And then in verse 18, Matthew begins the actual narrative of, of his birth. And he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Again, there, there's a lot actually going on in that first sentence describing the birth of Jesus. Uh, Mary is obviously said to be his mother, and she is, we're told, there was betrothed at this time to Joseph. That means that they were formally committed to be married, uh, but their marriage was not yet consummated. Uh, They were not yet living together under the same roof. They had not yet come together, uh, but it was just a matter of time until this would happen. In fact, they were legally considered to be married. And yet, before that time, When it says here they had not yet come together, they had not yet consummated their marriage with sexual union, nevertheless, she had been found to be with child. She had been discovered to be found pregnant, is what this is saying. And obviously, this screams of scandal. That word scandal was even in one of the songs that we sang It screams of scandal that they have not yet come together and yet she is with child. But, of course, we're told here right away by Matthew that she was with child from the Holy Spirit. What that is saying is that instead of being with child from a man, Joseph or otherwise, in the ordinary way that a woman becomes pregnant, instead what was inside her has been placed there by the Holy Spirit himself. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary was told that this would be the case before um, she started showing, before she was actually pregnant, she was told in advance by the angel Gabriel. And he said to her in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So obviously... In Luke's accounting of this, in what Matthew's saying here, there is absolutely nothing at all that is ordinary about this particular birth or about this child. It is nothing short of a miracle. He is the Son of God who is being placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And obviously, that removes... The, the scandal of it, Mary has done nothing dishonorable here at all, but this wouldn't have, and, and didn't remove the scandal altogether right away, certainly by appearances. We see Joseph's response to discovering that Mary is pregnant in verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, sorry, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I I have no idea how that conversation went uh, between Mary and between Joseph. Um, I think what what we're told here is that Joseph is concluding what seems very reasonable. I don't know what else he was supposed to conclude. This kind of thing doesn't happen. There is one way that a woman becomes pregnant. Joseph understands biology in a way that many seem confused today, but he understands it. There's only one way this goes down, and it wasn't me. And so his conclusion is she has been unfaithful. And I think we obviously should be um, sympathetic to the fact that he would conclude this and perhaps uh, be hesitant to believe Mary's story. He draws what seems to be the necessary and obvious conclusion. It says here that he was a righteous, or a just man, or it could be translated a righteous man, and that he was unwilling to publicly shame her, and so his plan was to divorce her quietly. Again, this, this uh, betrothal that they had, they were betrothed to be, to be married, uh, this was only dissolved by either death or by divorce. In, in many respects... Though a betrothed couple had not yet consummated their marriage, they were viewed as married. I think that we see this in Mosaic Law. We see this in Deuteronomy. In chapter 22, for example, uh, if a betrothed woman was found to be with another man, then the punishment for that was that both that man and that woman were to be put to death, which was the full punishment for adultery. Uh, if neither party was really married, uh, then, then the, the punishment is a little bit different. That's handled differently under Mosaic law. But if one of them was betrothed, then they were both to be put to death. And it says in verse 24, because she is the wife of another man. So there is a, a legality to this, even though the marriage has not yet been consummated. So what Mary could have faced was the death penalty for this. That's what she was looking at. If she was guilty, that could have been the case. And yet it's interesting that Joseph is said to be motivated not to go through with that based on the fact that he is a just or righteous man. Now, I think what this tells us is that the full penalty of the law wasn't always necessarily exacted. or That there was a place for mercy. And I think that's what Joseph is extending to Mary here. In Mary's case, it would have likely involved an investigation, a trial of some kind to find out who is this other man and and when would this have been. And Joseph was unwilling to put her through that and resolved to just quietly divorce her and then carry on. And nothing in the text of Matthew, nothing in the whole of the Bible would suggest to us that Joseph was acting unrighteously in doing this. In fact, we're explicitly told it is the opposite. He is acting justly and righteously. So Joseph is thinking he's going to go through with this, but the Lord has other plans. In verse 20 we read, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is confronted by this angel and told that indeed Mary has is indeed pregnant, but that she has conceived from the Holy Spirit. The same, same wording is used. She has not, in fact, been unfaithful. She's not been lying to you. She's not crazy either. She is with child, but it is from the Holy Spirit. And then the angel says, Joseph is to name this son It's going to be a son, and he's to name him Jesus, and we'll come back to that name in a bit. But after telling us what the angel said, Matthew then adds his inspired commentary to this, saying, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child, this Jesus that Mary bore, is no mere man. He is God with us. He is the Son of God in human flesh. He is God the Son incarnate. And some might want to argue, and I think some have, that just because he's you know, said to be placed there by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is truly divine, but this is the only thing that possibly makes sense of the fact that worshiping Jesus is appropriate. If he was even some lesser being to the one true God, this would not be appropriate. He is truly and eternally God. He is quite literally, Matthew's bringing Isaiah 7 into this, quite literally, he is God with us. And as we zoom out from Matthew 1 to the rest of Scripture, this accords with what we find. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, Colossians 1.16. He was with God in the beginning and was God, John 1 tells us. He is the one who holds all things together that have been created, Colossians 1.17. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, we're told in Hebrews 1, 2. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God, Hebrews 1, 3. He is truly and eternally God, sharing in the divine nature fully and truly with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the wonder and the mystery then of what is happening in Matthew chapter 1 is that this person, the eternal Son of God, was taking to himself a human nature. He was born of the Virgin Mary, being placed in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many different grave errors that are made by underestimating or downplaying this aspect of who this child is. He he might be easily dismissed this time of year when we just think of a baby and we see the bad caricatures of him in pictures and images and so on. His birth is not merely sentimental, just a sentimental event that is meant to fill us with vague notions of faith or hope. He is the eternal word of God God the Son, come down in humility to take on human nature, to take it to himself. He is truly God. That's what Matthew is communicating to us. But just as it is essential to affirm the true and full deity of Christ, it is also essential to affirm his true and complete humanity as well. He is not some sort of hybrid creature where he's kind of, part God, part man, and we mash it together and it's some sort of third being. Upon his incarnation, he now possesses two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is true God and true man. In Matthew and in the other Gospels, I don't think there's really any question that he is truly man. Uh, we, We see this uh, very clearly, all throughout, he has a mother. He was indeed, de- indeed, born of Mary. We see him growing up. He was a baby that looked like a baby boy. He was a baby boy. He would have done the things baby boys do, except sin, of course. But he would have cried. He would have needed to be fed. There was a real, actual helplessness about him as he laid there in the manger. We see him grow up. He needed to grow. He learned things. He grew in stature, Luke tells us. He, he grew up. We see some account, uh, not much, but we do see an account of him when he was 12 years old and he's growing up. He's learning things. He's growing. We see him become a, 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 a full, mature, physically mature man. We see him hungering, thirsting. We see him suffering, suffering. We see him needing things, we see him bleeding, and he even dies. None of these things would be appropriate to God. These are, are human experiences. I remember, I think I've said this before, but I remember vividly a conversation I had with a, a man who was a Hindu. He was in town here at the rink of all places, and, and, and we got talking about these things, and he said well, Jesus can't be God because God can't die, and Jesus died. And I thought, I was so surprised by the question and pleased with someone who had that kind of thinking, that, yeah, if if God could die, think about this, if God could die, we have a very serious problem, right? If God is capable of, of death, of dying, is he God, is he eternal, is he unchanging, is he weak? We see the true humanity of Jesus all throughout the Gospels. And it is essential to affirm that he is indeed truly man. And it's not something that we should be embarrassed about when we come across his humanity. When we come across his hungering, his thirsting, he asks a question. Moments where he appears weak, where he's even trembling and he's, he's, uh, he's, he, he speaks of being... Um, troubled in his soul in the garden of Gethsemane and so on he's sweating drops of blood he's hungering thirsting etc these things remind us that his humanity was not some sort of almost humanity it was it is true humanity he truly became man he truly took to himself human nature Hebrews 2:17 tells us he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is essential Hebrews is saying. He had to become a real and actual man in order to atone for mankind's sin. And so in Matthew In Matthew's way, as he tells the story of Jesus' birth, he's revealing to us this mystery that this child is God. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's born of the Virgin. He is God with us. He is truly God, and he is also truly man. I want to read to you from our confession, chapter 8, and this is paragraph 2 because i think this is honestly one of the most helpful uh, paragraphs in trying to get our head around this person of the son who is exists with two natures a divine and human nature there is nothing else like this there's no other being or creature that has two natures and so it's a difficult thing to try and get our heads around that at the same time he is some he is Helpless in the the manger, needing his mother for everything, in and through his human nature. And yet at the exact same moment, the same person in and through his divine nature is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So so here's what the confession says. And this is rooted in in language that goes all the way back to Nicaea and to the Chalcedonian definition in the 400s. I don't think it's been improved upon, nor will it, in bringing together what Scripture is saying. Here's what it says It says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, when the fullness of time was complete, took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it. That means he truly is man. He truly took to himself human nature. All the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, that would be his divine and his human, two distinct natures, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Saying they're not blended together, not forming some hybrid person, there's True human nature, true divine nature in one person. Which person, it says, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. He is one person with two natures, true God and true man. And this is the child who was born to Mary. this requires more brain power than I think many want to exert on Christmas. Our culture prefers uh, things that just simply will stir up our feelings, uh, maybe nostalgia or whatever. But seeking to to grasp something of this, of, of who this is, of how this fits, growing in our understanding of the person of Christ will help as you read your Bible. It'll help you in understanding your Bible. Again, those texts that you might read that reveal Christ's humanity, and perhaps there's been times, I've experienced this before, maybe you have as well, where you think, ooh, how does that fit? Isn't he God? How, how does that work? How could that be? But it's because he's true man. He truly is human. And so there's no reason to be ashamed or embarrassed that he had to grow up, as if that somehow undermines the claim in Scripture that he is truly God, the Son of God. He will give you greater confidence in your Scriptures, greater, I think, confidence in what he has accomplished for you who believe in him. And I would submit also a greater joyfulness in this as well. So, this is the person, the incarnate person. Let's turn to what he accomplished. Let's look at what Matthew tells us here about the incarnation's purpose. So, in this narrative, we don't just have statements about who this child is, but also why this event is occurring. In verse 20, when Joseph was considering divorce, the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The child's from the Spirit. You don't need to be afraid to take her as your wife. Proceed with full marriage with Mary. And the angel continues in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus for." He will save his people from their sins. The reason they're to name him Jesus is he is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus, that name, is, is the English form of the Greek name Jesus, which is the Greek form of the ultimately Hebrew name of Joshua. Uh, Yeshua, or there's different pronunciations of it, um, but... Uh, but the name Jesus is the name Joshua. The reason we have Joshua in the Old Testament and then when we get to the New Testament we're reading Jesus is because translators into English are going from Hebrew text. And so it would, it would translate more directly into English as Joshua, uh, whereas the Greek text translates more directly into English as Jesus. But if you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, where it talks about Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, it is, it is the name Jesus. And that means, Joshua means, Yahweh is salvation. That's what that means. So you're to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And the name means Yahweh is salvation. And here in short is the purpose of the incarnation. God has come. Yahweh has arrived in the person of the Son that he might save his people from their sins. The father has given a people to his son and the son has come to save them. He came as a man in order to rescue men. He is the last Adam come to succeed where the first Adam failed. Again, as a... Read earlier from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be man in order to be the head of a redeemed people. He came to take upon himself the obligations of those people. He fulfilled the law with perfect obedience on their behalf and then took their sins upon himself and died ultimately to pay the penalty for those sins, thus propitiating God's wrath, thus satisfying God's just wrath and anger against his people. And his offering being thus acceptable to God, he rose victorious from the dead on the third day. Sin, obviously, is man's great problem. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, sinned, and as a result, all are fallen. All are under the curse that God then issued. In Adam, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in Adam all die. And yet, even in that pronouncement of curse upon Adam and Eve and their descendants and the earth and the serpent, even then... God made a promise of this seed of a woman who would come and would crush the head of this serpent. The first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And as the un- Old Testament unfolds, so too this promise picks up steam and a little more clarity. We're given a little more information about it. All of the Old Testament ultimately is driving towards the fulfillment of this promise son of the woman that would come and deal with this problem that Adam introduced into man. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we see that this seed is going to come from the line of Abraham and then through Jacob, or Isaac, I should say, and then through Jacob. Jacob is is renamed Israel and his family is... Israel is made into a holy nation before God. And out of this nation, this child would be born. And then as the Old Testament continues, we find out more specifically, this is going to be a king from the line of David Second 2 Samuel chapter 7. And after many, many years of waiting, of, of seemingly all hopes being dashed, even if you think about the book of Malachi, We preached that a few years ago now. But that that even comes after exile. The nation, Judah has gone into exile and then brought back from Babylonian captivity. And yet this, this hope of renewal has still not yet been entirely met. There are still the same kinds of problems that Israel had always experienced and Judah had experienced beforehand. And there's still this sense of what what else what something else needs to happen. And Malachi, sure enough prophesies, again, that one day Yahweh would visit the temple, visit his people, and there would be a messenger that would go before him. And then there's there's no inspired scripture for another 400 years, often called the 400 years of silence, until suddenly an angel appears to Zechariah. That would be John the Baptist's father. We read about that in Luke chapter 1. Finally, this Messiah, this Christ, was born. Did you catch even in, in verse 23 here that da, uh, Joseph, when he's addressed by the angel, he's called the son of David. He's referred to as the son of David. The child born to Mary and Joseph was the son of David who was to come. The offspring promised from as far back as Genesis chapter 3. He's the offspring promised to David in Second Samuel chapter 7. He is the one spoken of in the Psalms and in the rest of the prophets. He is Yahweh come to his people that Malachi prophesied about. He is God with us. One of those prophets who pointed ahead to this day was Isaiah. And Matthew quotes from Isaiah as he gives us another purpose, another reason for the birth of Christ. Verse 22, again, all this took place in order... Two, that's purpose, expressing purpose. Why is this happening and taking place? It's happening in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of this redemptive history, all of the Old Testament is driving towards this. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be be made alive. Adam got us into this mess. Christ is the one who would come to get us out of this. The New Testament speaks in a number of places of the Father giving a people to the Son. Again, on behalf of whom the Son would execute his role as mediator, as Savior. And as we've been seeing in Galatians... A sinner receives the benefits of Christ's work, is forgiven, brought into God's kingdom, reconciled to God, counted righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith alone. Man is hopelessly in darkness, eternally condemned under the weight of our sinfulness before the holy and almighty God. And yet... In Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. There is salvation in his name. And as Paul preached to the men of Athens, God calls, commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin, to confess it to God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. After his resurrection, the Son has ascended to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for those that he secured salvation for as he continues his mediatorial work for his people. Our trying God continues to draw men and women to himself as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in all the earth. This good news that a child has come, the son of God who has been born and has vanquished the power of sin and death, that there is forgiveness of sins in his name. There is reconciliation with God that is a gift of His grace received by faith in Jesus Christ. And it continues to be the great need of the hour. It is the need of mankind in 2023, no less than in the first century. This need for man to be redeemed from our sin, to have this problem of sin overcome. All the mess that we see all over the world at its root is that we are fallen in Adam. And the one ultimately eternal solution and answer to that is the Lord Jesus Christ to be found in Him. And as we believe in him and trust in him, we await with eager expectation his second coming. The day that the God-man, Jesus Christ, will return to usher in the new heavens and new earth. The hope of Christ's nativity, his birth, is not a vague hope. A faith in and of itself is not necessarily commendable. It depends on the object of that faith. Faith is something that we do find in this passage, if you look at verse 24. It says, "When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus." This is not explicitly said to be faith in Jesus, but it is certainly faith in God and in His good promises. It is faith and trust in God that, is, that, it, that leads to and results in this remarkable response of obedience on the part of Joseph. It is an exemplary faith. Both Mary and Joseph in the stories of Jesus' birth in Luke and in Matthew. And, and Luke's gospel recounts it really more from, from Mary's perspective and Matthew is a little more from Joseph's perspective. But in both, we find both both of them exemplary in their trust of God. It's remarkable, really. It just states, "He so he did it. The angel appears to him, tells him this, this is going to be difficult to explain still to family. And yet Joseph does it. He believes God, and he does it. Mary, likewise, when she was told, before Joseph even knows about it in Luke chapter 1, she said, she, she declared herself to be the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me as you would see fit. And in fact, there's, there's hints throughout uh, different points in, in Jesus' life that the scandal of his birth was never fully done away with when he walked the earth. Uh, you recall when Jesus was in a dispute with the Pharisees and they were claiming to be true sons of Abraham. We, we're children of Abraham here. Jesus was saying they weren't. They're really children of their father, the devil. But in John 8, 41, they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And quite likely, that is a shot directly at Jesus, an accusation of him being born really of sexual immorality. And so we see here this faith that Joseph exhibited Mary as well, to believe God, to take God at his word, come what may. The comment there that, that Joseph took Mary to be his wife but knew her not until she had given birth is a further stress that Mary was indeed a virgin in the technical sense. Uh, maybe sometimes maybe you've heard this before, but um, I, I have that you know the, the word virgin in Isaiah chapter seven. This prophecy, you know that that word in Hebrew could just mean a young a young woman, not necessarily a technical virgin, and so people will will say that to sort of you know you think well, I don't know Hebrew well, I get maybe and so you know they'll they'll argue this tradition sort of grows up about a, a virgin birth but that's really not what Isaiah is talking about it's really not what, but but you very clearly just in what we've just read in Matthew that is precisely what. Matthew is saying, she, she, he, even Joseph seemingly understood the importance of her remaining a virgin, so that he knew her not until after, after the child is born. So the scene described for us in Matthew one, the the, the event that we would celebrate, we draw attention to it today, on Christmas Day. But of course, this matters for us every day, that Christ has come. And what's being described for us in Matthew 1 is nothing less than the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, who came to redeem His people from their misery and sin. This is the Christian hope, that all who trust in the Son are forgiven and will forever dwell with our triune God. A hope that is sure and certain because Christ will not fail at his task. And again, his deity assures us of this. He can't fail. This is the hope that Christ's birth reveals to us. And this is the hope that we continue to proclaim to the world today. You know, there are those, you know, we, we've never made a ton of the church calendar. Um, and, and for some, they'll even not celebrate the birth of Christ until December 25th. Up until then, it's all Advent, it's all expectation and, and waiting. It's, of course, good and right to spend time to think about the incarnation, the birth of Christ, to, to, to do this. I'm not knocking that. But, of course, this is, is not simply a yearly occasion when we celebrate this. It's similar to Easter as well. It's always sort of interesting to me because it's the Lord's Day. Every Sunday we're celebrating. why are, The Lord is risen from the dead. Every Sunday is like that. And, there's this sometimes a bit of a, almost pressure. It's Easter and, it's, and now you have to you know, suddenly make a big deal of the resurrection. But every day we, we're trusting the Lord has risen from the dead. Every day we're trusting that the eternal Son of God has come as a man taking human flesh to himself in order to secure and purchase redemption that is our hope today and every single day of the year. And so again, this is not sentimentalism. This is not just a a nice little occasion so we can get together, but it is the hope for you and I that we bank eternity upon and that we proclaim to other people. He is the blessing that God had promised to Abraham that would go forth from his line to bless all the families of the earth, to all nations. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you thanks for your word that reveals to us what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we don't pretend to have our minds wrapped around everything that to do with the incarnation of your Son. We can't possibly fully grasp the eternal Son, assuming human nature, existing with two natures, And yet we are grateful because what is clear in your scripture is that this is necessary for our salvation and that it is true. Father, we recognize we are finite beings and you are infinite and your ways are much greater than our ways. We thank you that you've given us truth that can be understood, that we can bank on. And we are taking on faith that this word is true. That your son has come and that he has secured our righteousness and our forgiveness of sins, our pardon. We're taking on faith that you will save us not because of works done in righteousness, but simply because of what Christ has done for us. And that we receive this not because we are good, Do the right things, but by simply looking to Christ in faith. Father, just as those of your people who were waiting and looking and longing for the coming of the Messiah were tempted towards despair, we too confess to you that we are sometimes tempted towards despair as we await his second coming. Father, Father, I pray that you would help us to look again to your word, to remember your character, that you will not let one word that you have spoken fall to the ground without it coming to pass. We are reminded that even in the first century, they were being mocked, your people, for pointing to a second coming of Christ. Peter tells us there were those mocking, saying, Where is this coming? And yet we are reminded that with you one day is as a thousand. So Father, we entrust ourselves to you and to your timing. Make us those who are watchful and waiting in anticipation and with faith for the coming of Christ. Father, I pray that you would make this of our greatest joy and our, our greatest concerns. There are many things that rightfully concern us that we have to be busy with but i pray that this would occupy our affections above all else ultimately father we truly need your spirit to help us with these things as we are weak and so we pray for your mercy and your help in these matters we thank you so much for sending your son in the fullness of time to redeem us from the curse of the law I pray that we would all place our hope fully and firmly in Christ Jesus, young and old. Father, we thank you and praise you for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.